Okay, we are back in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We're working our way through a short teaching series, relatively short for us, uh, in these two chapters of Revelation that contain a sequence of letters to seven specific churches. Um, These are churches that were uh, in physical proximity to the Apostle John as he was imprisoned on an island called Patmos, just off of the coast of modern-day Turkey. And these, uh, the area then was known as Asia Minor. And uh, these seven cities contained seven newly planted churches. And um, the Lord, through John, is addressing these seven churches and giving what we have identified as a spiritual evaluation of the churches from the Lord's perspective. And as you look at churches, as you consider churches, as you, as you evaluate churches, all that ultimately will matter on the final day is not what I think about a church or what you think about a church, but what the Lord thinks about the church. And the reason I interrupted our, just as a reminder, the reason I interrupted our ongoing study through the book of Acts to do this set of studies is because we have recently passed through our 35th anniversary as a church and as we did so and I was just thinking back personally over the history of the church and all the Lord has done with us and where we are not so much uh, practically speaking but where we are spiritually uh, trying to see the church through the Lord's eyes and admittedly that's always going to be a somewhat imperfect um, effort to accurately identify how the Lord sees us. But with that perspective, um, it just it was in my heart to stop and, and shift our focus to these seven letters because they're, they're short, relatively, relatively speaking, compared to the, like the, the letter to the Roman church or the letter to the Corinthian church and, and all of the other New Testament letters written to the various churches. Um, These are relatively short, but they're very impactful if you read them carefully and pay attention to the details that the Lord um, made sure to communicate to each one of these seven churches. Now, we're up to the uh, the, uh, fifth of the seven studies. This is a letter to the church in Sardis, and it begins in chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, it's a relatively, again, as I said, a, a short letter, only six verses. So let me read through the entire letter, and then um, we'll, try to, we'll try to unpack all of the, uh, the important information in this letter. I, I ended up with more prepared notes on this than I was anticipating. So I'll just alert you in advance. This may end up being a two-parter. I don't know. I may finish it all today, but I may stop halfway through if we're at the end of our time and pick up with the rest next week. All right. So chapter three, verse one, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now, while all of these details in each one of these seven letters is exceptionally important, I've been making a special emphasis 
on what is repeated in verse 6 of chapter 3 as he ends the letter to the church in Sardis. This is something that the Lord says as he's speaking to each one of these churches through these letters. This is something he says to each one of them, uh, repeats it therefore seven times. So um, you've heard me make this emphasis before. If the Lord repeats himself even once, it's meant to catch our heart's attention, cause us to stop and consider what's so important that you felt it necessary, Lord, to repeat. But when the Lord repeats something seven times, uh, that's like a, a, a blaring alarm to say, don't miss this emphasis. So the emphasis, again, is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's two parts to that repeated line through all seven of these letters. The two parts are, he who has an ear, let him hear. And the implication is we're talking about not physical ears, because most, in fact, all of us in this room have physical ears and we're able to hear, but it's more of a kind of like, do you have spiritual perception of what you're hearing? And what they're hearing are the contents of these seven letters. So it's one thing to do what I've just done, which is read through the letter and you hear it physically speaking. Every single person in this room has heard what I just read. But do you have an ear to really hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches through this letter? And the idea of, of the word churches is it's plural. So this is a letter to the church in Sardis. Our church, Tree of Life, is not identical to the church that was in Sardis as this letter was written. Neither is our church identical to any others of the seven churches that are in these two chapters. But what the Lord is saying to the church in Sardis and the church in Ephesus and the church in Laodicea and all of the seven is something that he is saying to all the churches. Meaning we are meant to gain wisdom from the Lord's evaluation. We don't have to come into the exact same set of circumstances that the church of Sardis was in in order to gain the wisdom that Sardis was missing up until the point that they received this letter at least. I want to learn as a pastor and I want you to learn as a flock what it is that the Lord wants us to learn for what he has to say to them. Now, um, remember that the, the uh, background for all seven of these letters is the vision that the Lord gave to John in chapter one, where he saw the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus, but he saw him in a specific context. He saw him in the imagery of the Old Testament temple. However, the temple here is not the temple on earth not the temple that was in the city of Jerusalem, even as John was writing this letter. The context here is a heavenly temple. And this absolutely fits the pattern, which is as Paul taught in the book of Hebrews, the earthly temple was simply an external, natural, symbolic representation of a greater and heavenly and more spiritual temple. And in the earthly temple, there was a high priest who ministered on a daily basis within the walls of that temple. Now the focus is on a greater, a higher, a heavenly high priest who is Jesus himself. And the job of the high priest in the old covenant temple was to go in on a daily basis and to evaluate the lampstands in the temple. And the, and the evaluation was focused on what is the oil level in the lamps on the lampstands and what is the condition of the wicks that will cause the light to burn brightly because the lampstand, of course, was the sole source of light within the temple. And so what the Lord Jesus is doing as John sees him in the vision is he's in the midst of seven lampstands. And then he explains because John might not get the connection at the end of chapter one, he explains that the seven lampstands that he sees Jesus in the midst of are actually the seven churches that he's writing these letters to. And so the Lord himself is visiting these seven lampstands and he's evaluating them for their oil level they need to be filled up if they're empty. And he's evaluating them for the condition of their wicks 
so that he can trim away all of the dead material to cause the lamps and the lampstand therefore to burn as brightly as it's intended to burn in the Lord's purposes. So here is the Lord now visiting the lampstand in Sardis, the church in Sardis. Now for each one of these letters, I've identified that some historic ba historical background is important in order for us to catch details of the Lord's message to the church that we would miss otherwise. And this has been true for each one of the letters that we've studied so far. So let me give you three key details to the church in Sardis. And uh, here we have it on the overhead at this point. Um, before, a significant amount of time before this letter was written, some 600 years, a little bit over 600 years from the time that this letter was written, Sardis was the most prominent and powerful city in this region of the world in what came to be known as Asia Minor. It was a fortress city. It, the, the main part of the city was on this, uh, this high ground and a, 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 the city itself was like a, a fortified city and it could not be uh, overwhelmed, it could not be taken and as a result it grew to great prominence in the area. But by this time, 600 years later, it's a city in decline. And what we're gonna see here in just a moment is the city had been captured historically, even though at one point it seemed impregnable. It seemed like no one could possibly capture this city. But uh, two times since that much earlier time, 600 years before, the city had been completely conquered, once by the Persian Empire, once by the Greek Empire, and in both cases, the city was conquered at night when the majority of the citizens of the city were asleep and soldiers from these two invading armies climbed up the walls that had previously been considered to be unclimbable. They climbed up the wall. It's like this would be a great movie to, to uh, actually film the story of one of these invasions. They, they climbed up the walls of the city when no one could see, no one knew that they were coming, and uh, they overwhelmed the city and completely conquered it. So uh, what does that historic detail have to do with the letter? Um, the idea that this city at one point was alive and powerful, but by this point, a city in such decline that it was nearly a dead city at the point of the writing of this letter. And then second, they had been so strong that they felt no one can possibly take us down, and yet they eventually were taken down twice in very significant ways. Now at the point of the writing of this city, uh, in terms of the religion of the city, there was, uh, just like all of the, the seven cities that we're studying, uh, there was a mixture of a lot of Greek and Roman uh, religion. Uh, but the two, um, or excuse me, the one temple that was most prominent in the city at this point in history was a temple dedicated to um, a, a goddess by the name of Cybele, and also known uh, in the Greek language as Artemis. And uh, the unique power that was ascribed to this goddess was she had the power to restore the dead to life. Now, for our sake, what, is there actually a goddess named Cybele or Artemis that exists? Of course not, there is no such goddess. It's, it was just a fantasy. But the city as a whole believed in the reality of this goddess, dedicated this huge, gigantic, beautiful temple to her worship, and did so because they viewed her as having the power of resurrection. The power not just to raise herself from the dead, but to raise anyone that belonged to her, that was one of her followers, one of, one of her worshipers, to bring and restore back to life anyone who had died. Now, of course, as the Lord speaks to this city, he does, to the church in the city, it's interesting how he weaves his words of exhortation and warning to the churches in with the historic reference points of the city that the inhabitants of that city would be familiar with. Because how did, what is the main concern of the church in Sardis? What's the main issue as the Lord looks at the church and evaluates it? The main issue is, again, look at verse, um, the end of verse one. 
just after the Lord introduces himself to them, he says to the church, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's just interesting. They, the, the city as a whole worshiped a goddess who had the power to restore to life. And here the Lord, the only one who actually has the power to restore to life, is evaluating the church within that city that worshiped that false goddess. And he's looking at the church and saying, you are actually spiritually dead, even though you have a name, a reputation of being alive. All right, so let's look at first, uh, as we have with each one of the letters, how the Lord chooses to introduce himself and identify himself to the church. Um, just remember that every one of these churches, even this one, which I'm describing as we're, as we're naming each one of these studies, I'm describing this as a dead church. Even this dead church was a true church. Now think about that. There are false churches out there, many false churches, way too many false churches in the world today. But this was a true church. How do we know it was a true church? How do we know with certainty, with 100% confidence, that the church of Sardis was a true church? Because the Lord is writing a letter to them. He's not writing letters to the Mormon church. He's not writing letters to the Jehovah's Witness church. He's not writing letters to every other so-called false church out there but he was writing a letter to these seven churches and therefore we know that he considered these churches as belonging to him, however imperfect they might be in the way that they were actually following him. And of course, this church of the seven, you know, there are a couple of churches that are very praiseworthy. The next one in our list Philadelphia is going to be one of those praiseworthy churches. The Lord has a lot to say to commend the church. We saw one of the earlier churches as, as being so praiseworthy as the Lord was evaluating them that he had not even one single negative thing to say about what was going on in the life of that church. But that's not the story of Sardis. Sardis, the Lord only has one good thing to say about them, really only one good thing about the church. Can you imagine, I, I've asked you before to consider putting ourselves in the position of each one of these seven churches so that we can hear with our heart ears what the Spirit is saying to his churches. And I, I, I said before, like with there, there was one church, the, the very first one we studied, the, the letter to the Ephesians, where everything the Lord had to say to them was, was commendable, praiseworthy. There was only one thing that was concerning to him in the church it was a big one which was they had lost their first love but still I, I said at that time wow what a blessing it would be to be a church where as the Lord looks at us he sees mostly commendable things and if if he only had one big concern for us I could live with that I mean not that I would want to continue in that but I, I could live with that it's much better than to be in the position of Sardis where he only has one commendable thing to say about them and he's got a huge negative thing to say about them so as he introduces himself he is speaking as lord to these churches that belong to him they are true churches but he is also re-identifying himself to them because as david called attention to caleb's opening exhortation in our worship this morning um, it is possible for us in our walk with the Lord to lose our connection to things that we should not lose connection with. It's possible for us to veer off course. And this entire church had veered off course. And so when the Lord re-identifies himself, it's like bringing them back to the anchor points of what should be their relationship with the Lord of the church. So there are two key identifiers that the Lord uses to reintroduce him to the church. And they're not easy to understand, but they are meant to be understood. So I'm gonna take a little time on this. And this, is one of the this section is one of the reasons why I mentioned I may end up with a two-parter for this study. Uh, so the two identifiers, 
as the Lord reintroduces himself to the church is he wants them to see him as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, before we dig into our study, how many, and try to be honest if you can, please, show of hands, how many of you would automatically understand exactly what is meant by Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God? Okay, we got one bold soul. Um, and that's fine. It's not a clear and, and easily understandable uh, introduction. In fact, again, I've mentioned I've got what I consider to be the best commentaries on the book of Revelation in print, and I own all of them, and I've studied all of them. And um, even, even among the best, there is a lot of discussion and some debate and some disagreement about exactly what is meant here when Jesus says, I am him who holds the seven or who has the seven spirits of God. The second identifier, and I'm gonna get into detail on both of these. The second identifier is him who has the seven stars. Now this one is a little bit more understandable, so I'm gonna jump on that one first and we'll go back to the seven spirits of God. Him who has the seven stars. This is a reference back to the vision that the Lord gave John of himself as he's ministering as the heavenly high priest in the heavenly temple. Look back at the very last verse of chapter one if you're following along with me in your Bible. This is now the Lord Jesus speaking to John by way of explanation. As for the mystery of the seven stars, okay, right there, we just need to stop and, and understand when the Lord describes something a certain way, it's important for us to recognize it's exactly what he says it is. The seven stars are what, first and foremost? They're a mystery. Now, in the Bible, whenever the Lord uses the word mystery, he does not describe something like in a, how many of you like mystery stories or mystery novels or mystery TV shows or mystery movies? Generally speaking, in those kind of pop culture mysteries, if it's well-written, if it's well-constructed, as you begin to read, you have no idea what's going on. And usually in the last chapter or sometimes even the last page, it, all the pieces come together and finally you see, oh, now I get it, right? But biblical mysteries are like that in a sense, but in, in a really important sense for you and me, they're like that no longer. They were a mystery for all the ages and generations of what we call the Old Testament time period. All the way from Adam to Christ, these things were mysterious because none of the people of God were yet filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. There were blessings of the Spirit that came upon them, but the ability to see and comprehend the most mysterious things of God from the perspective of God himself was somewhat locked or hidden to them, even to the point where it's described that many of the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied about things that they did not fully comprehend. They weren't just speaking off the top of their heads. They were speaking words that God inspired them to speak, but their own, their own understanding did not fully comprehend all of the things that they were prophesying about. Those were reserved for the future generation that would experience the fulfillment of those things. But now that Christ has come, and now that he has died on the cross, risen from the dead, and ascended back to the right hand of God. Now he has poured out his spirit upon his church. The spirit comes to indwell us, and the spirit grants us the ability to spiritually comprehend what was previously mysterious. So the mysteries are in relationship to things previously hidden, but now revealed, now made known. The Lord doesn't want us continuing to spiritually 
scratch our heads and say, geez, I have no idea what that's about. We are meant to comprehend it and grasp it. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not steps to get from the starting point to full comprehension. Those steps usually involve uh, right study of God's word, right meditation of God's word, right teaching of God's word, but nevertheless, we are meant to comprehend them. So when he says here uh, to, uh, and I'm going back to chapter three, verse one, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, and we reference back to chapter one, verse 20, the seven stars are, are a mystery, but back in verse 20, he goes on to explain the mystery. You don't have to turn back there because I don't want to go back and forth for you, but I'll just, I'll just read the rest of verse 20 now. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the Lord then gives a brief explanation and connection so that we get it, we comprehend. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, we dug into this in some detail back in the first letter to the Ephesians. And what I ended up explaining is that there are different viewpoints about the identity of these angels of the seven churches, but they really boil down to two good views. And I say they're, they're both good because they both will fit the context of how the Lord is communicating in the church. And it's not even to this day perfectly clear as to which of these two approaches are the better approach. And there are really solid heavyweight Bible scholars that hold to both of these viewpoints. The two viewpoints are the stars are either guardian angels of the individual churches, just like the idea of the Lord assigning angels to guard individuals that belong to him at key and important moments of their life. In the same way, the Lord possibly assigns individual angels to watch over and to guard the, the welfare of the churches that belong to him. So I'm fine with the idea that uh, the, the stars, the seven stars are literal angels when it says to the angels of the seven churches. The other possibility is he could be referring to the leadership of the churches. The angel of the churches is commonly understood by many scholars as referring to what we would call in modern day terms, the pastors of the seven churches. Because the word angel that's translated angel and can refer to heavenly beings who are messengers of God is also the same word that is used to describe human messengers that the Lord assigns to bring his message to his people. So it's entirely possible that the focus here is this, these letters are being written to the seven pastors or leaders, spiritual leaders of the church, and then they're to then, in turn, in responsibility, pass those messages on to the church. What's the main point, though, of referring to Jesus himself, referring to himself as him who has the seven stars? Whether they're angels or whether they're pastors, he has them. What does it mean to have something? It belongs to them. You possess it. You have some authority and power over it. If I say to you, this is my Bible, what, am I, what do I mean by that? Does it, do I mean that you can't own a Bible? No, I just mean this physical copy belongs to me. I paid for it. It's mine. I'm taking it home today. You might come up and say, hey, that's a cool Bible. I'm taking that home. And I'd say, no, you're not. Now, I might give it to you after you say you want it. Don't ask, because um, this is like a giant print ESV, and um, I use the giant print so that I can see what I'm trying to read as I'm preaching to you. This is my preaching Bible, so please don't take my preaching Bible. But the point of, the point of referring to himself as the one who has the seven stars is he's in charge. He's in charge of the guardian angels of the church or he's in charge of the pastors of the churches. And either way, the reference is that the Lord has governance over his church, even over a dead church. As long as it 
at some point was identified by him as a true church, a church that belonged to him. And it's struggling, it's struggling mightily at this present moment in that church's history. But the Lord is still in charge. He's still speaking to the church. It's interesting. It's a little bit different than the, the way we normally use the term dead. You know, rereading again at the end of verse one. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That means presently, this is your true spiritual condition. But what's, what's the very next thing he says in verse two? Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So in one mysterious sense, the church is dead, but it's about to die. How can both things be true? If you're dead, you're not about to die. And if you're about to die, you're not dead, right? Well, both are true for the church in Sardis. And the explanation for that is the church is composed, the church is not just a, an institution. People in our present culture, even a lot of Christian people, like to kind of reduce the church to an institution. Yes, in a sense, it's an institution, but it is a living institution because what? What composes the church? It's not, of course, the structure in which we're meeting today. This building, you know this. This is not new information for you. This building is not the church. What is the church? You are. We are the church. And so, is in the church of Sardis, is every single person in the church spiritually dead? The answer is no. He says, uh, look in verse four. And for the person, uh, Samuel, doing the over, I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, so just bear with me if you can. Verse four, that you still have a few names in Sardis. And I want to emphasize, if you're one to underline in your Bible, underline the word few. You still have a few. What's the sad thing about few in this context? It's only a few. It's not many. It's not many people in Sardis. You have a few who what? You have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are, oh, I love this last phrase. They are worthy. Can you imagine the Lord? Now, he evaluates the church, yes, but he also evaluates individuals. Can you imagine the Lord looking at you and your relationship to him, your walk with him, and he says about you, you are worthy. Not, not because of your own goodness or your own righteousness, but because of faithfulness and obedience and allegiance to the Lord. In spite of everything that's surrounding their lives. So the issue with the church is, it is characterized overall by the Lord as a dead church. Why? Because the church is comprised of people. Therefore, what can we conclude? Most, since only a few have not soiled their garments, most in the church were spiritually dead at this point in the church's history. A few in the church were not spiritually dead. So what does that mean? It means there's big trouble in River City, but there's hope. Where's the hope found? The hope is found first and foremost in the Lord himself, of course, but the hope is also found in the few. The few within the larger number that are walking with the Lord in white, who are worthy of being identified by the Lord himself as a true disciple of his, a true follower of his. One who, who represents him in the way he wants to be represented in the world. So, um, I jumped ahead there. Let's go back to how the Lord identifies himself. And I think maybe it was a good jump back because I won't get to that main part until next week now, it looks like time-wise. Um, 
but let's, let's be sure and finish this part about how the Lord identifies himself. So first, or the second of the two ways he identified himself, he says, I am him who has the seven stars. The seven stars are the seven um, either guardian angels or pastors of the church. And the main point being that the Lord has governance over the church in spite of the mixed nature of what's going on spiritually within the church. But the first way I'm gonna have to spend a little bit more time on to rightly understand it because this is even more mysterious. He wants the church to know him and to see him as the one who has the seven spirits of God. So as I mentioned, this is a debated symbolic reference, all right? And there are two primary options, uh, two choices. And both of these are allowable within the boundaries of biblical doctrine, but I do, I'm convinced that one of them is a much better option than the other. So I'll give you the less preferable option first, and then I'll give you the option that I think is the correct one. The first possibility is that the seven, um, the, the seven spirits of God, and I'm reading here in verse one again, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, is a reference to seven angels, specific and literal angels. And in Jewish tradition, and I'm not sure that the Lord would necessarily refer to Jewish tradition at this point, but in Jewish tradition, there are, there are special, there's a special category of leading angels that are above the ordinary angels of heaven. Not that heaven's angels are ordinary in any human natural sense, but in terms of you looking at all the created angels that God has made, and among them, God in Jewish tradition has set apart a special group to lead the other angels. And these angels then take on this special designation of archangel. And you're, how many are familiar with the term archangel? You've heard that before, right? So I won't name the seven Jewish archangels. One of them that's named is the archangel Michael. Now, from a biblical perspective, in terms of just the information that we have revealed to us in Scripture, how many archangels actually are there? One. He's identified in the book of Revelation by the name Michael. He's also identified in the book of Jude, and he is identified as an archangel. Now, uh, there's multiple reasons why there's only one of these. I'm not gonna get into a whole theology of Michael right at this particular point, but I will just say the term archangel literally means the one who leads the others. And I think it only makes sense that there's one who leads the others rather than a group of seven. But they base their view, this group that believes that these are seven angels, on this passage later in Revelation in chapter eight. And so there, it at least has some biblical basis for the idea even though I don't agree with the idea. Look in chapter eight, verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is a, a side point, by the way. Has nothing to do with our study today. There's a lot of people that think that, uh, believers, that think that in heaven, time's gonna just kind of go away. Like there won't be any time in heaven. It's just this unending, eternal timelessness. I don't think that's the case. I think time will exist in eternity future. Um, someone's keeping time in heaven. There's silence in heaven for what? About a half an hour. I mean, there were no watches, right? No, no iPhones to reference, you know, to, okay, I'm gonna hit silent start, so I'm gonna hit the, uh, the timer button. Uh, but someone's keeping track of time in heaven. All right, that's just a side point. When the Lord opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, I mentioned before that I don't necessarily believe that there are seven archangels. These angels are not identified as archangels. They're just identified as having a special assignment. 
Do I believe that some angels are given more special assignments than other angels? Yes. These seven have a very special assignment. They're given seven trumpets and they're going to, they're going to blow those trumpets at seven key points in the unfolding sequence of judgments that are represented in this middle section of the book of Revelation. Can't get into all of that right now. The main point is there are seven angels who stand before God who are given special assignments. So those who hold to this view that the seven spirits that Jesus has are these seven angels immediately before the throne. I don't agree with that view. Not that it's entirely unbiblical, just that I, I just don't agree with it. The other viewpoint is this, and this is the one I do hold to. Let's turn all the way back to the Old Testament, the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 11. I believe, and there are many good commentators that hold this view, so I'm following their lead in this. I believe that the seven spirits are a reference to one spirit. And the one spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And so the seven spirits are, this, the idea of the spirit being pluralized is just a reference to seven qualities or seven attributes or seven things that the Holy Spirit accomplishes and in his relationship to the people of God, but they're all flowing from his person. So uh, here in Isaiah 11, there's a prophecy of the Messiah. He's referred to in verse one as a shoot, which is a, a new growth from the stump of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Anybody remember? David's father, King David's father. And the stump of Jesse refers to the fact that Jesse was like a, a living tree. His family line leading to David and from David to Solomon was like a living tree. But because of Solomon's sin, that tree was affected. What happened to the tree? Cut down because of Solomon's compromise with idolatrous worship. And so the, the stump of Jesse is like just a stump now. It's like no good thing can possibly come from Jesse after Solomon. But God had prophesied through the prophets that he would bring the Messiah from the line of Jesse to David and that we would see uh, not just life but the ultimate expression of life from the family of David. And so there shall come forth in the future a new growth from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. And then this description in verse two. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We saw this happen when? at the baptism, the water baptism of the Lord Jesus by John the Baptist, when the Holy Spirit in the physical symbolic representation of a dove coming down from heaven and, and landing upon him and remaining upon him to indicate that the presence and the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit was indwelling Jesus as the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then this this interesting description of the Spirit's influence and activity through the Lord Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, if you look through verse two and identify the seven descriptions, you see that the Holy Spirit is described in a sevenfold ministry. Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of the fear of the Lord. You have a sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. I believe when John has revealed to him by the Lord reintroducing himself to the church, that as him who has the seven spirits of God, he's emphasizing, I am the one in charge of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the churches. Now, this is a point of emphasis that we all should be familiar with, but let's head from Isaiah back to Acts chapter two. And I didn't put this passage anywhere in the overheads, but I think it will help. So I wanna revisit it. We studied this not long ago in some detail. This is of course, day of Pentecost. And the Spirit of God has, at the beginning of the chapter, filled 
the 120 disciples that were in the upper room. And they've spilled out into the streets and they are now given the opportunity through the apostle Peter representing all of the church, the, new, the newborn church. He is now proclaiming the gospel to the, to the curious and gathered assembly of the citizens of the city of Jerusalem. And he makes an awesome proclamation. We, you know, we went through this in, in detail together, but I wanna revisit uh, verse 32. As Peter proclaims, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God so he's proclaiming the resurrection and to unbelievers the ascension of Christ being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter emphasizes by the Spirit of God that, that Jesus received from the Father the fulfillment of a promise about the Holy Spirit that was made in the old covenant prophets. And as he ascended back to heaven, he then in turn poured out from heaven, the Lord Jesus did, not God the Father. God the Father gave to Jesus the fulfillment of the promise and then the Lord Jesus poured out from heaven upon the church his Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is a distinct person from the Lord Jesus and a distinct person from God the Father, but he is under the authority of the Son of God, just like the Son of God was under the authority of God the Father. So that now the Spirit that fills the church is under the authority of the Lord who sits upon the throne of God in heaven. The idea is he is reintroducing himself as the one who has the fullness, the sevenfold fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the midst of his people. And why is that important to reintroduce himself in that way to his people? Why is it important that they know that? Because they're a dead church. And where does the life of the church really come from? It's not from our accumulation of Christian activities. Going back to, we'll end here, going back to uh, Revelation 3. This is such an important point in understanding the true nature of the church. Verse one, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, the fullness of the sevenfold ministry of the spirit of God and the seven stars, I know your works, works being Christian activities. I know your works and based on those works, you have the reputation of being alive. You know, there are, a church can be active and dead at the same time. Sardis was. I know your activity. And I know that your activities have given you a reputation. Who's the reputation? Who is, who is perceiving them in this way? It's not the world around them. It's not the culture that surrounds them. The culture doesn't look at the true and living churches and say, wow, that's a true church. It's the other churches as we consider one another. And they had a reputation based on their activity level as being alive, but the true evaluation from the Lord's perspective who sees it at a deeper level than activity alone. Listen, I am not arguing against Christian activity. Every true church should be filled with Christian activity of a, a whole spectrum, a whole variety of ways. But that is not how we evaluate whether we're in a good and healthy place with the Lord. What, what determines whether we're in a good and healthy place with the Lord is, are you and I filled with the Spirit of God? And I don't mean our initial experience the day we were born again. Of course, that's how we came into this special and new indwelling relationship with the Spirit of God. But am I filled with the Spirit today? 
The book of Ephesians, Paul exhorts the church and he says at a key point in his exhortations, in, in the literal sense of how he wrote it, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be being filled. The idea is to be filled with the Holy Spirit is an experience. I'm not talking about that first initial dramatic experience of the Lord moving into our lives, into our hearts with the Holy Spirit, but I'm talking about the, the, the everyday filling of the lamps. We are the lamps on the lampstand. And we need to be filled every day and we need to have our wicks trimmed every day. The Lord introduces himself to the church to say, I'm the one that dispenses the oil. Don't forget that. You have no life apart from me. You know, I can, I can, literally, I can get up in the morning and start doing Christian activities all day long. And if I haven't spent any time with the Lord that day, just, I'm just busy, just filling up my life with good stuff. I haven't spent any time with the Lord. He hasn't filled my heart that day. He hasn't trimmed the wick of my light that day. I'm, I'm on a downward slope leading to eventual spiritual death if I continue that as the pattern of my relationship with him. All right, we're at the end of our time. This will be a two-parter. Uh, we'll pick up the rest of what the Lord has to say to the church as he commends, uh, has one commendable thing to say about the church as he evaluates the church and then as he warns the church because of the dire nature of their present spiritual condition. And then he finally encourages the church and specifically those who are walking with him in white as you and I should desire to do. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word which fills us, your word which trims us, your, your spirit who gives us life. I pray that we would, uh, we would not be like the many in Sardis, but by your grace that we would be like the few. It's only if you accomplish that in us, that it can be true. But I desire it to be true as a shepherd. I desire it to be true as a member of this particular body of believers. May it be true for us by the, the presence and power and the influence of your spirit working in us. I ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you.